just wanted to add a little note before we get started today, and I'm just punching this into the audio, just to let you know that in the coming week, uh, my wife and I will be taking a vacation. It's been quite a while since she and I have had the opportunity to do it. I think it's been about five years or more. And so we'll be gone the next two weeks. If you're coming to attend personally, uh, John Richardson will be here. He's an amazing, incredible teacher. I encourage you to be part of that. So if you miss out the next two weeks and you don't see a recording online, don't think, oh, Dave's forgotten or whatever, just out of town, enjoying some time with my wife. And uh, I'll also be gone again to West Africa in November, so I'll miss a couple of days again, a couple of weeks again in November. But just wanted to give you a heads up, let you know, so that if you see some missing weeks in the podcast, don't think that we've quit or something's gone wrong, it will pick back up. But uh, that's where we are. So with that being said, I'll transfer straight into the message today. Revelation chapter 6, and onward we go. We got the first half of this one done. We're fixing to get the second half. Or at least the second half of this chapter, anyway. Okay, I put out another another timeline back there. That is Danny Aiken's timeline. So if you know who that is, if you don't, look him up. Uh, but Danny Aiken's timeline back there, again, I, like I said before, I'm going to give you guys some timelines periodically. I'm not going to give you a ton of them because if you go Google image, Revelation, you're going to see a blue million timelines. And everybody's got different ones, and they all got so much detail. And I'm not that guy. So I know they're helpful. And so some of the people that I trust, I'll give you along the way some thoughts from some people I trust. But but I'm not going to try, as I've said before, to define every little thing, every nation, every animal, every person. Every, I'm not going to do all that because... Uh, for one, if you want to know that that bad enough, you can go dig and find out. And for two, my interest is in seeing God and seeing Jesus more so than seeing the man and the nation and the power and the you know, borders and whatever else. Although those things come up. So anyway, I went ahead and put another timeline out there. And Oh, and also, just because I put it out there again doesn't mean that I fully 100% endorse that that's exactly the way it's going to happen. I don't know. So I'm going to tell you what I know and what I don't know. And I, I trust Danny Aiken, and I trust, you know, the people that I'm referring you to, but, but they don't necessarily all agree on every little detail. And so just don't, just don't assume that David said this is exactly what's going to happen because that's not necessarily true. Maybe, but not necessarily. Uh, Dr. Aiken does say here, These series of judgments are best interpreted, now listen, in their relationship to one another as partially concurrent. This is sometimes called the telescopic view. Now listen, he says, this approach understands the seventh seal. Remember, we're opening seven seals on a scroll. And we've opened how many so far? How many horsemen? Yeah, four. Right. So we have how many to go? Three. Correct. So that's good. Got the math right. So he says, this approach understands that the seventh seal to introduce and contain the seven trumpets and then the seven trumpets... The seventh trumpet to introduce and contain the seven bowls. And this is what he's saying. The seven trumpets, therefore, are the seventh seal. And the seven bowls are the seventh trumpet. This would indicate both an increase in intensity and a greater rapidity of the judgments as the end of period approaches. So this is the way that I think of it. Okay, there's a lot of ways to try to wrap your brain around this and it'll hurt. But this is the way that I think about it. I think about it like a spiral. Okay, you know, if you're looking, and I, if I had a whiteboard, I'd draw it, but I don't. If you're looking at a spiral as it gets narrower and narrower and narrower, it gives you the sense of it speeding up. You know what I mean? And it's all going to some point in the middle. So that's the idea, is the outer ring begins the seven seals. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, narrowing. And when it gets to the seventh seal, Maybe it reverses direction, or maybe it bumps in and continues. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then bumps in. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Entire, entire, entire. But all of it is in the seals, particularly the seventh. Or you could look at it this way. Think of the days of creation. You had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What did he make on the seventh day? Rest. He just rested. He didn't make anything on the seventh day. But he did make things on day four or day six. What did he make on day six? Man and the beasts. So 
if he made those things on day six, how long did it take him? Did he make them all at once? Did he make them a, a few at a time? Did he spit them all out? I know we're not here to talk about creation. But the idea is that the seals are the same way. On day on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, on the seventh seal, everything occurs. If you picture it as a day, everything else occurs on that day. If you picture it like that. Seven trumpets and seven bowls all fall on day seven, if you looked at it like that. Now, I'm not saying they all happen in one day, but I'm just giving you an analogy to get the picture. Does that make sense as best as it can? Okay. So, that's the idea. How many sets of seven do we have? Three. Is that significant? What is three? You remember? Trinity. Yeah, that's the number for God. There's some numerology. There is great truth in it. There's also extreme ridiculousness in it. I'm not going there, but the basics are pretty much there. So three is definitely there. It's the number for God. And seven is what? Completion. So this is the complete work of God will happen in three sets of seven. So it's a picture going on there, okay? It's also getting progressively worse. In chapter six, we looked at these seals and throughout these seals, particularly the last, the fourth one there, when the death and Hades come, they're given authority to kill how much of the earth or to destroy how much of the earth? A quarter, yeah. One-fourth. You're going to see when the trumpets start to blow that there's going to be destruction to a third of the earth. That's a bigger portion. And then you're going to see when the bowls start to dump, every living thing is then affected. Okay, so they're getting progressively worse as they go. Um, I'm just going to read this. I, I wrote it out for my own knowledge when I was thinking this thing through. But and I, I feel stupid like I'm quoting myself. But y'all wouldn't know that if I hadn't just told you. But I'm just going to read read it because it's easier than me trying to explain it. Uh, this is where I was wrestling through trying to understand some things. Some attempts are made to insist that each section of Revelation must be seen to apply to the original audience as well as future audiences. So the audience in the first century, the argument is the audience in the first century when John wrote this would have had to have been able to understand or apply its meaning to them as well. That's the argument. And I said, I said, while there are certainly many truths that could be applied, it's not necessary to insist on that. There's many sections that do apply to first century believers, such as the churches in chapters 2 and 3, but to demand that all of the writing must be relevant to their present day as well as ours and also the future apocalypse is unnecessary. Daniel is a great example. For instance, how did Daniel 10 through 12 apply to Persian Jews in their daily life, particularly chapter 11 that details the king of the north and the king of the south? We went through all that, you remember? And the four generals of Alexander and all that other stuff that's in there, how, how would they have... A, that, that didn't relate to them. They couldn't have put that in terms of it being applicable to them. So this is my point. This is why we approach Revelation with a single-minded view that is applicable to all centuries of believers, past, present, and future. And that view is seeing God. So that's why I'm calling this seeing God. I, listen, whether it is uh, a given revelation uh, that's relevant just to the first century believers is irrelevant. If it is given to us is irrelevant. If it's given to the people in the future is irrelevant. What is relevant to me is how I can look at this and understand the nature of God. So in other words, is the Antichrist alive today? I'm not, I don't care. Is the Antichrist alive in the first century and therefore they would have been able to relate or was there a, you know, I don't care, I don't care. I mean, I'm going to look at the stuff like we did with Daniel and whatever. But at the same time, I don't really care. I, to me, we're coming at it from one perspective, and that is how do we understand the nature of God better? So if we, if we come at it that way, then it is applicable to all time. Daniel chapter 11 was applicable to those people if they were looking at how could I see God better or how could I know the nature. So keep that in mind as we keep going. So verse 9 Revelation 6, 5th seal. We're going to look at the 5th and the 6th, and we'll save the 7th for next time. The 5th seal here, Roman, uh, Roman. Revelation 6, 9. When he opened the 5th seal, I saw under the altar. It's interesting. We haven't seen that word. The souls 
of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had borne. Uh, that word born doesn't mean they created something. It, it, it's talking about like a badge or an identification. And I don't want to get too crazy, but it's the idea kind of like the mark of the beast. They, they, they're wearing a mark. Now, I'm not saying they have one physically. I'm just saying the point here is not that they are preachers out shouting from the rooftops. These are just people that have associated themselves with the witness, which is what? Who have they associated themselves with? Christ. That's right. So that, that's all it really means. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, sovereign, huge word there. How long before you will judge and avenge? Our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers. The word and there can be translated even. So in other words, it would say until the number of their fellow servants, even their brothers should be complete. I think that's more to the point because I don't think we're talking about two different people here. And then it says their brothers should be complete who were killed, who were to be killed. He said, sovereign a minute ago, now to be killed, were to be killed as themselves had been. So, I put a new VOM magazine back there. It came in, if you haven't seen it. This is the article that it's talking about. Following attacks on three towns in Nigeria's uh, Kaduna state last week that killed 46 Christians. Now, this is literally last week or two weeks ago now, September 25th. So, not a long time ago. Literally just, just happened. Church leaders said the Muslim Fulani assailants seemed driven to rid the area of Christianity and use the land to graze their cattle. Two pastors were among the 31 Christians killed just after midnight on September 17th. So the, the report came out on the 25th, but the 17th is when it happened. Pastor Ezra Ibrahim was killed, and the Reverend Julius Jacko was slain alongside his wife and 12-year-old daughter, said 60-year-old Dejuma All, an elder of the congregation. All this elder, he goes on to say, suddenly we heard sounds of gunshots around our village. The pastor was still in the pastorate when the Muslim Fulani gunmen forced their way onto the church premises. They cut him, his wife, and a daughter with a machete and then tied the hands and feet of the three of them before setting their house on fire. The three of them were burned to ashes in the living room of the pastorate. We only found the charred remains of the three of them the following morning. All said that in three hours of bloodshed, without any effort to intervene by security agencies, the Fulani Muslims killed 31 Christians. Four slain families in the village left no surviving members. Now, that ain't a long time ago. That just happened. These are Muslims... So they are believers in a faith. So let me ask you something. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but what makes them different from the Christians that we're seeing here or the believers that we're seeing here that are martyred, that are under the altar? Or better yet, let's bring it home. What about the guys that flew the planes into the buildings in 9-11 for Allah and killed themselves? What makes them different from a Christian martyr? Our God is real. True. They believe theirs is real enough to die for it, though. They believed a lie. They think we believed a lie. They, we, we believe their God's not real. They believe our God's not real. They're willing to die. We're willing to die. So who's right? How are we right? And, and they're wrong. What, what about what they're doing? Okay, what about what they're doing? And this is difficult, so I, I understand. But what about what they're doing? Let's go back to the guys who flew the planes in the buildings. Versus these guys, these pastors in their 40. How many was it? 46 Christians in, in um, Nigeria. What's the difference between the two cases? One's offensive and one's defense. That's exactly right. One is for the glory of Allah, I'm going to kill myself and everybody else. And that's not a martyr. That's a murderer. Murdered yourself too. That's a difference. Car bombs. Uh, you know, these guys wearing the bombs and the jackets and all these things for Allah, that is not a martyr. That's a murderer, even if they're murdering themselves. The martyr is the one who stands on their faith and is murdered for it. That's a big difference. Okay, that's a big difference. So don't, don't let that stuff confuse you. But the goal of what's going on here with, with these guys 
in Nigeria and other places is they, the, the goal is to build terror, to get obedience through submission, which is what, not just to pick on Islam, but that's predominantly what Islam does. You look at ISIS, that's what they're doing. They're not just killing people, they're doing it brutally, and they're doing it for the world to see, to try to scare people into stepping down. And that's exactly what the beast is going to do. Same exact thing. Okay, when he shows up on the scene, he's going to do the same thing. And as a result, you're going to have these martyrs uh, at, right here, we're being told, under the altar. So, why would God say that they were to be killed? In, in Revelation 6, back there. Yeah, the complete number, to rest a little while until the complete number of those who were to be killed die. Why would God say that? Appointed to death. Why? Why would God say that? And, and listen to me. If y'all hear me get on it all the time, so I'm not going to get on it too deep. But if this doesn't mess with health, wealth, I don't know what does. Jesus said. Jesus said in John 17. We don't have to go there. John 17. He's praying for his disciples. The whole chapter nearly is about him praying for his disciples. And in verse 14, he says this: "I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world." Watch this, verse 15. I do not ask you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He didn't ask for them to be given an escape. Why would he not ask for them to have an escape? Why would God want, and I'm going to say want, or appoint. Let's just let's be literal. Why would God appoint for there to be martyrs? And why would God stay back from it in, tor- in order to insist that there were a complete number of them, however many that is. I'm not trying to get into all that, but there was a set number because he says until that number is complete. Why would God do that? Yeah, he who didn't spare his own son. That's good. When martyr, yeah, Sarah said martyrdom is when the church grows, and that's very true. The harder you press the church, the harder it grows. There's a principle there for sure. But let me take you to something, a familiar story. Go to John chapter 11. Hold your hand because we'll come right back. I'm going to go to John chapter 11. This is a very familiar story, but now let's look at it in context of that question. Because people ask that, and that's a hard question. It's kind of along the lines of why does God allow evil, or why does God let children die, or things like that. This one's a little different, but it's along those same, the same lines. And the question again is why would God appoint or allow or say that there were a number that was going to be killed, and he was going to allow that to com- be complete? John chapter 11 is Lazarus, as you know. Look at verse 11. Watch this. After saying these things, Jesus said to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll get better. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Okay, dummy. Dave's translation didn't say that. said, Okay, Lazarus has died. Verse 15. Watch this. Underline it. And for your sake, what? I'm glad. What about all of his sisters and everybody that's bawling their eyes about? What about Lazarus that actually experienced death? I mean, Jesus said, for your sake, for your sake, disciples, I'm glad that he died. Well, that could be said, but Caleb said, be absent with the bodies, be present with the Lord. That could be said. We could, you could say, well, Lazarus is better off. But that can't be what he means because he's about to do what? Raise him from the dead. So if he's better off, and he is better off. But the point is, if that was what he was trying to prove, then he'd have left him alone. He's trying to say something else. For your sake, I'm glad that he died, that I was not there, he says, so that you may believe. This is kind of to the point of what Sarah was saying. It makes the church grow. And then he says, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his disciples, fellow, fellow disciples, let's all go that we may die with him. So in other words, it wasn't just a matter of going to raise the dead here. It's a matter of going to a place much like Nigeria where they hate you and they're looking to kill you. And you're going to go there to a dead man from the disciples' point of view. So why would Jesus allow it? Why would he say, I'm glad? Why would Jesus allow for the full number of uh, martyrs to be killed. Well, the secret 
which isn't a big secret. We just blow over it because it sounds too simple, but it's really not, is in verse 4. Same chapter, John 11, look at verse 4. Before he said all that, he'd already answered why. This illness does not lead to death, even though he's going to die. It's what? For the glory of God, so that, what? The Son of God may be glorified through it. That's it, man. That may sound easy to you, but there's nothing easy about that. Why in the world would God tell these martyrs in Revelation 6 that are underneath the altar, you're going to just rest, guys, because there's a whole bunch more coming? Why would he, and every one of them is going to come. Why would he say that? For his glory. For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And yes, to be absent with the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And yes, it pushes the church to grow. So the martyrs here, you can go back to Revelation 6, but the martyrs here that are coming out, these are not martyrs of all time. Some say that. Can't be. Because they say, how long are you going to wait till you avenge us, basically on those who've killed us? So the idea is that they're talking about people alive at the time. So these are people coming out of the tribulation, I believe. Most that I've looked at do too. This is specifically related to those who are coming out of Jacob's trouble, as I will call it, or the tribulation. So, there's a curious phrase, though, that there's an altar there. Where has this story been taking place? In a throne room. That's right. In a throne room. I showed you a picture a minute ago. In a throne room. And now, all of a sudden, there's an altar there. What does an altar imply we are now in? A temple, yeah, a place of worship, yeah. It's still a throne because the throne's still there, but now we have an altar, we have a temple. So now we have a throne room slash temple. Have we ever seen that before in Scripture? Definitely in the Psalms, a number of places, but there's a big one. Probably the biggest prophet, maybe the biggest book in the Old Testament that's a prophet. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he goes in the throne room and there's the prayers of the saints and all these things going on. I mean, that, that is a temple. And God is on his throne in the temple. You can go look at it in your own time. So what's the altar there for? What's the point? Um, these guys are below it. And so some people believe that it is a reference to Exodus 29, which you don't have to turn there. It just says in verse 12, when he's given instruction for what to do with the altar, the big altar where they sacrifice, the brazen altar where they sacrifice the animals, it says in verse 12, Take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar, the four horns around, with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour at the base of the altar. So they say, well, this is a picture of the martyrs here in Revelation 6. says they are at the base of the altar and they are uh, murdered. Blood's poured out. That could be. Could be. Not really sure. ESV Study Bible says this. The fifth seal reveals the Lamb's rationale for releasing these four horsemen. To devastate the earth. Under the altar in heaven, where sacrificial blood would pool, John sees the souls of believers who were slain. And they are pictured as sacrifices for bearing witness about Jesus. The rest of the book progressively shows how the Lord answers their prayers to avenge their deaths. It could be. I don't necessarily lean that way, and I'm going to tell you why. Because is there a need for that altar, that brazen altar? No. Why not? Huh? Yeah, because Jesus was the last sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice is it. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't going to bleed and die. I'm not saying that your martyrdom is not a sacrifice. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying that brazen altar was to point towards one person. And that person's come. And that person bled. And that person is now the one standing there like a lamb. Okay? I think it's more Robert Thomas, John MacArthur both say this. They say an identification of this with the golden altar of incense is more probable. Throughout the book, the heavenly altar is connected with the execution of judgment for which the saints are praying. And the prayers of the saints for judgment are symbolized by incense. Remember, we already talked about this. We talked about it last week. The prayers were ascending there. That was Thomas MacArthur says the text does not define which altar is in view. The altar John saw is most likely comparable to the altar of incense because of the association of incense with prayer. I agree. Because what are the martyrs doing? Praying. Oh, Lord, how long will it be? That, that, that's what we do, right? God, how much more of this have I got to take? 
the same thing we do. God, how much longer? You know, God, when are you going to? God, why don't you? That's what they're doing. They're praying. Um, and MacArthur says something awesome here. And, and I really didn't even, I wrote it down here and didn't think about it that much until earlier today. And it's really awesome. He says, prayer will play a vital role in God's judgment on earth. When judgment comes, prayers for divine judgment are fitting. Such prayers are not from a desire for revenge, but a protest against all that is sinful and dishonoring to God. What MacArthur is saying is that when it's time for judgment, pray for it. And it's fitting that you should. And that's the way that God is going to move into judgment. Do you follow that? It's like people say, if God's already got what he's going to do and his plan's sovereign, it's already set, why pray? Well, because that's the tool that he's going to use to make it happen. I know. I know. I understand. I can see your face. I know. I understand. But that's the point. Why pray if God's got a sovereign plan and it's going to get executed? Because it's through prayer that he's going to execute it. Do you want to be used in that plan or bypassed? That's really what it comes down to. You want to be used or you want to be bypassed? And so his plan is judgment, and it ain't wrong for them to pray for judgment. How long, oh, Lord? Well, that's a great question to ask because right now is the time to be asking it because here it comes. All right? Here it comes. Robert Thomas says, when grace has exhausted its long-suffering, they say we're in the church age or the age of grace, when grace has exhausted its long-suffering, only judgment is left and prayers for righteous retribution are appropriate. Such prayers come not just from a thirst for revenge. They are, at least in part, a protest against sin. I agree. A great example, for instance, is who's the very first person to die? It was Adam and Eve that sinned and and death entered the world through them. But it was actually, as far as we know, Abel was the first one to physically die. Cain killed him. What did God say in response to Cain's killing Abel? He asked him where his brother was. And he said, I don't know, I'm not my brother's keeper. And then God says what? Yeah, he said, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. In Genesis chapter 4, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. Same kind of idea. So you're told that these guys, these guys, these martyrs underneath the altar, what do they look like? We don't have any idea. They're a soul. Notice it said souls. It doesn't say that they're elders because an elder would, be, would look like a person. They're not described as these angels. They're described as souls. What does a soul look like? No idea. Okay? So these are not arisen people like they've been reunited with their bodies uh, that's not happened yet. It'll happen in Revelation 20 when we get there. It hadn't happened yet. These are just souls. C.S. Lewis says it best. Man, I love this. He says, we are not a body that has a soul. We are a soul that's been given a body. So that's the picture. The soul is there, all right? And it's there under the altar. And these guys are given two things in response. They're given a gift, and they're given a word from God. So, hey, Even in this moment, God responds to their prayer. Does he do what they ask him to do? Not necessarily. He doesn't answer directly. How long is it going to be? He doesn't say six hours, 22 minutes, and 40 seconds. doesn't know what he says. He says it'll be exactly as long as it's supposed to be. But I tell you what, I'm going to give you a gift. And I'm also going to tell you a word. And the gift and the word are both awesome. This is the key, by the way, to remember. This is, this is the best part of it all. They're both good. So the gift that he gives them is what? White robe, yeah. Now, they don't have any body, so don't think of this as them being clothed in a robe necessarily. It's just symbolism. What does it symbolize? Purity, that's right, or holiness, or cleanliness, you know, or blessed. You know, we've talked about this several weeks ago. And then he gives them a word. He speaks to them, and he says, I got a word for you. Rest. That's good news, man. Hey, man, y'all just chill. Just relax. You already come out of all that. Just rest, man. Lay your head back. Relax. That's awesome. That's the best one. That one makes me happier than the... That one sounds good right about now. So, but he says, how long are they supposed to rest? Yeah, a little while longer. So there's a set time. It's not delayed. He's not saying, I'm putting it off till later. He's saying, there's a plan. A set time, and when it gets here, 
It'll get here. Go over to Revelation 13. Let me show you a similar passage real quick. Look at Revelation 13, verse 7. We'll get to this, so I'm not going into it deep right now, but just to point out a similarity. He says in verse 7 of Revelation 13, The beast was allowed, key phrase, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, more than just the Jews, over everybody. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written, here it is, before the foundation of the world. Sovereignty. In the book of the Lamb of God who was slain. O sovereign Lord, how long will it be? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call. For the endurance and faith of the saints. That would be very similar language to what he's telling these martyrs underneath the altar. If they're devoted to die, they're going to die. I know this ain't fun to hear. I'm just telling you. If they're devoted to die, they're going to die. It's going to happen. For what reason? God's glory. That's right. For the glory of God. They're going to die. And and so endure. Here's a call, man. Endure, guys, because it's going to be rough. That's what he says. Go back to 6. This is moved to the sixth seal. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, and then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone... Slave and free, doesn't matter if you're the most powerful king on earth or a slave, everybody and everybody in between. And by the way, just a little note there, the weight is on the wealthy side. There are seven people group listed there, and there's only two that aren't describing rich or powerful people. So the weight is heavy on that side. I think that's largely because there's a lot of them left at this point because the famine. Remember, they had it all right during the famine. Okay? So he says... That all these people hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand their wrath, by the way? So, up until this point, five seals have been possible for mankind to do. The fifth seal really is not applicable, but the others have been possible other than in the sense of killing a person. But the others have been mankind, war, famine, you know, these different things. This all of a sudden changes things. This is the sixth seal changes things entirely. Can man accomplish any of these things just described? No. Colossians 1, you don't have to turn, says, verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Who is the him here? Jesus, right. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Get the picture, man. In him all things hold together. What he's saying is your very being is held together by Jesus. The atoms of the universe are held together by his breath. I I remember hearing Adrian Rogers once say in a sermon that if Jesus just exhaled, every atom in existence would split apart. And he's being dramatic, of course, but it's the idea. It's just just mind-blowing to think of, but Jesus himself said this. You don't have to turn. Luke 21, 11, we already talked about it. In that day, there will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence. Listen, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Robert Thomas says the phenomena here are so severe that they are unparalleled in human history. They are shattering enough to leave human beings with the full impression that the ultimate end has arrived, but they are not comprehensive enough to amount to a total destruction of creation's order because human life continues on after this. So everybody's going to think, this is it. The earth is going to explode into, but, but it doesn't. Remember, Jesus even said, people, in those days, people will want to die, but death will elude them. Okay, that's the picture. So when is this happening? Where are we if we're following time? 
where are we now at the sixth seal? Because this sure sounds like the end of everything. So some would say, some would say that this is the end of everything. And the rest of Revelation's just kind of chunked in the end there. But that can't be true because there's another seal to open. And even if all those other things happen when that last seal is open, that's still another seal that's got to be open. So this can't be the last event. And then most of the others say it falls somewhere in between, like the three-and-a-half-week mark. So just to give you an idea, Robert Thomas says right now in the story we are just before the midpoint. He believes there's a lot due. The seventh seal, when it's broke, the next one, when the trumpets start, that's the beginning of the second half. That's what, uh, what he says a lot, say that. David Jeremiah says also that we are at the midpoint. Thomas says we're just before it. The seventh seal is the mid. David Jeremiah says this is the midpoint, and this is when the beast will come into Jerusalem and set up the abomination of desolation. All that He says that's going on during the same time as all this chaos. John MacArthur says we are just past the midpoint, and this is the start now of the three and a half years. So where are we? Don't know. But we're in the middle of it somewhere. Okay? So all this is happening. Everything we're looking at happens in a seven-year period. We just know it's all happening in this time frame. And this is not the end of it. Okay? So, bearing that in mind, MacArthur makes a great point. I'm giving you a lot of quotes because there's a lot to be said here and I want you to see it. He says, the force described in this sixth seal is overpowering fear. Keep that in mind. What's going on here, what God is doing here, is not so much destroying the universe as he is terrifying people establishing, you want to scare people uh, with your terrorist behavior? I'll show you something scary. Dave's translation. MacArthur goes on to say, while the first five seals will result from human activity God uses to accomplish his purposes, at this point, he begins direct intervention. The previous five seals will be precursors to the full fury of the day of the Lord, which will begin with this seal opening. The events described in this seal unleash the seventh seal, which contains the seven trumpets and, and bowls, which we've already talked about. So, one little key phrase in there that's weird, by the way. The wrath of the who? The lamb. Not the lion. The wrath of the lamb. Sounds weird to put lamb and wrath together. But I think, and there's a lot of debate about that. But I think what's cool about that is, what was the fifth seal? What was in the fifth seal? What was the subject of the fifth? Martyrs, right? So, what is the lamb? Not necessarily a martyr, but the lamb was murdered and killed and is risen. And I think it's no surprise that we've stuck the lamb right there. I think what's being pointed at here is the lamb is beginning to answer the prayers of the martyrs. That's what I think. And so the lamb is the association to the martyrs. He's beginning to answer the prayers. Also, you could say, too, one commentary I read was awesome the way he worded it. I just didn't put it in my notes. But that the ultimate sacrifice of love has been offered. And to those who've rejected it, the only thing left is wrath. It's a good way to look at it. So, either way, move on to we have an earthquake. There have been a lot of earthquakes. Even in discussion of the end times, there have been a lot of earthquakes. But this is not just an earthquake. This is the word literally means a shaking. And what's being shaken? The earth and the heavens. Not just the earth, the earth and the heaven. This, this is unprecedented. We're not talking about an earthquake. We are talking about a shift in the earth. Huge, huge, huge act of God. We're talking about some say plates shifting on the earth. A massive earthquake is what's being described here. We're talking about volcanic eruptions, all kinds of junk blown into the earth's atmosphere you you know what happens when volcanoes same idea all this volcanic ash and everything going into the sky and, and all this stuff um some like macarthur and some others have believed that could be why the sun is blackened and why the moon has a red hue could be but let's look at these in order here real quick uh the, or look at the rest of them here through the sun tells us that it's black as sackcloth what does that sound like in a natural sense, what does it sound like? Yeah, if the sun goes black, what is the, what is it? When, yeah, like an eclipse. Yeah, it's the idea of an eclipse, except that it will stay that way. 
So then there's the idea of well, maybe the volcanoes or whatever blacking out the sky. I don't think we necessarily, it could be, but I don't think we necessarily have to go there because God has done this before in a supernatural way. Supernatural way. When? Joshua, he held the sun still in the sky, but when did he black it out? Egypt, yeah, the plague. you got to see this. Go over there real quick. Exodus chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. What does it say about it? A darkness to be felt. you understand what that means? You ever been like that way where you're like in the dark and it's almost like giving you chills like it's just it literally means it's so black that not only can you not see but you almost feel like you're walking through it like a blanket that kind of darkness now that would be surprising enough some say we're talking about a eclipse here but that's not dark enough but even if it was dark enough there's still something significant watch so moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch Darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place. They couldn't even get up. They didn't have lights and electricity. But what? All the people of Israel, what? Had light where they lived. They were in Egypt, suburbs. You know what I mean? They had light where they lived. How is that possible? I don't know. Okay? So, same idea. Go back to Revelation. Same idea in Revelation. It doesn't necessarily have to be explained by volcanoes or whatever, although it could be. It doesn't necessarily have to be explained. It could just be supernatural. So, the moon, same idea. The moon's uh, shade could be a re- you know, reaction to the atmospheric changes related to all this going on. Um, the stars in the sky, I'll come back to it in just a second. And then the mountains and the islands. It's interesting that he says islands because what do you think of when you think of an island? Volcano, yeah. So it could very well be talking about volcanoes. Again, people pretty much unanimously agree that we're talking about shifts in the crust. Now, there are the group of people that believe that this is all talking about Rome in the first century. So if that's you, then that's different. But if you're tracking where I'm tracking, then these groups of people would believe you're talking about a global-type catastrophe. Now, has that happened before? When? Noah, the flood. Go back and look at it. That's exactly what happened. He caused the earth to split and bust, and it rained, yes, but it flooded from below, too. Broke open the fissures in the land. And some believe this is just a belief. This is not in the Bible, nor is, am I even sure I believe it. I'm just telling you. Some believe that there was a Pangaea-type land, if you know what I'm talking about. People think that the, all the continents fit together because they look like they did once upon a time. Some believe that were well, that was the case, and the flood split that. That could be. I don't know. But the point being, this is not going to be a flood. We know it's not going to be a flood. Why? He promised he'd never do that again. So we know it's not going to be a flood. But it's going to be a, a similar cataclysmic event. And uh, needless to say, it's going to be bad. Okay? So let's get the last little bit here. Let's jump back and look at the stars falling from the sky. Some say this could be missiles and atomic bombs. And that's like, now I'm going to show you something about this, and then I'm going to tell you what I think. Revela- uh, Adrian Rogers says, Revelation 6.14 speaks of the heavens parting like a scroll. The scripture is not as far-fetched as some people think. Do you know what a nuclear blast does in the atmosphere? It causes a vacuum. Then the air rushes back in. And the heavens literally roll up on themselves. That's true. That's what it does. Okay, it causes a blast, and then it sucks back in, and it literally rolls up on itself. Y'all seen the movie? Probably not. I don't know. But the movie Godzilla? You know who Godzilla is, at least. I know you do. So especially if you're a kid like me. I loved Godzilla when I was a kid. Molly and I were watching the movie. I saw it in the theater, the newer one, but we went and got it the other day because it's just clean. You don't see clean movies anymore. But in any event... I loved Godzilla when I was a kid. I loved him. But something I didn't learn until I was older. Do you know when Godzilla came out? First of all, what does Godzilla do in the old movies? Destroys Tokyo. Yeah, everybody knows. It's real easy. He stomps on Japan. He mashes Japan. Do you know when the story of Godzilla came out? When the movie did in the story? Just after World War II. Why do you think that is? Huh? Yeah. 
oh, Hiroshima. It was literally a figurative picture of what had happened in Hiroshima. The West and the authorities that had conquered Japan governed what they were able to produce in terms of uh, talking about what went on there. So they made a movie about it, and they made it figurative. They made a monster come into Japan and stomp it to pieces out of the sea. Flames coming out of his mouth. And sure enough, when he leaves, there's radioactive activity everywhere. I think that was that was all symbolic. Same kind of idea that John is doing. John is seeing all these symbolic things, and he's he's trying to put his brain around the unexplainable things that had never been seen before. John's trying to describe. Well, the same thing was true then. Nobody had ever seen an A bomb before. Nobody had ever seen it. Listen. On the morning of August 6, 1945, an American B-29 bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped the first you got to hear this now. The first Atomic bomb used in warfare on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The bomb was dropped by parachute and exploded 1,900 feet above the ground. Didn't even hit the ground. Between 60,000 and 80,000 people were killed instantly. The heat from the bomb was so intense that people simply vanished in the explosion. Many more died of the long-term effects of radiation sickness. The final death toll was calculated at 135,000. The blast destroyed more than 10 square or 6 square miles of the city and the intense heat of the explosion then created many fires which consumed Hiroshima for and lasted for 3 days trapping and killing many of the survivors of the initial blast thousands of people were made homeless and fled the devastated city 3 days later August 9th, Americans dropped a second, bigger atomic bomb. The bomb was dropped on nearby Nagasaki an important Port City. About 40,000 people were killed instantly, and a third of the city was destroyed. The final death toll there was calculated at at least 50,000. Put on a stinking seatbelt, because this just wrecked me when I started looking into this. I'm going to give you, you may not want to know this, but you need to hear this. This The history of a, atomic weapons, okay? you got to, you got to get this, okay? It, the first one was called, these are the names. first one was called David, Davy Crockett. And it was 0.01 kiloton. A kiloton is a thousand tons of TNT. Okay? This one was 0.01 kilotons. The next one was Little Boys, what it was named. That's the one that blew up Hiroshima. It was between 13 and 18 kilotons. So 13 to 18 thousand tons of TNT is what did what I just read to you in Hiroshima. Okay? And then the Nagasaki one was bigger, 20 to 22. Okay? You got this? 20 to 22 kilotons of atomic weapon is what did what I just read. Now listen. Since then, we have gone to a W-76 warhead that has 100 kilotons. Then a W-87 warhead that has... 300 kilotons. Then a W88 warhead that has 475 kilotons. This is thousands of tons of TNT. Okay? And then an Ivy King, which has 500 kilotons. Then they came up with the B83 nuclear bomb that has 1.2 megatons. That's 1.2 million tons of TNT. And that one is still active in active service. With the United States military. We still have that one in active. So that one's still in places to be used where it's necessary. Then, we ain't done. Then, there's a B-53 nuclear bomb that has nine megatons. And then a Castle Bravo device that has 15 megatons. And then an E-17 that has 25 megatons. And finally, the last one is the, the, the SAR Bomba, is what it's called, SAR Bomba. It has 50 megatons. The USSR has this bad boy. We don't even have this one. It has 50 megatons. Listen, 50 million tons of TNT. The USSR's most powerful nuclear weapon ever detonated in its full form would have been 100 megatons. It, so they, they restricted it to detonate it to see what it would do to 50 million or actually, because it's 50, you're at 500 now. Can you get your brain around that? Million megatons. And they blew it up. And this is what happened. You show, show that picture, Mo, of the explosion. 
You, the only thing they, they have is this, okay? The only footage they have of it. And this is when it happened. It, it, this is what it says about it. It says this is the equivalent, listen, to about 1,350 to 1,570 times the combined power of both the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. 1,570 times the combined power of both of them. Ten times, this is mind-blowing, the combined power of all the conventional explosives used in all of World War II. If you took all of the explosives used in World War II, ten times that, you got this thing. It was detonated on October 30th, 1961, so that was a long time ago, over a nuclear testing range north of the Arctic Circle. The bomb weighed 27 tons, and it was so large that the plane that carried it had to have its bomb bay doors and fuselage and fuel tanks removed to make it light enough to fly. The bomb was attached to a parachute that, that would hold 17, over 1,700 pounds, which gave the release planes time to get about 28 miles away before it blew. And when the detonation occurred, the plane still fell a whole kilometer from its altitude from the shockwave. The SAR bomb of firefall, fireball, so when it blew, and it didn't blow on the ground, when it blew, the fireball that blew, not, the, not, that, not that smoke going up, just the, the blast, it said the SAR bomb's fireball about five miles in diameter, five miles around, was prevented from touching the ground because the shock wave pushed it back up. The fireball was visible almost 620 miles away from where it ascended. The subsequent mushroom cloud, listen to this, was about 40 miles high, over seven times the height of Mount Everest, which meant that the cloud was above the stratosphere and well into the mesosphere when it peaked. The cap of the mushroom cloud had a width of 59 miles. All buildings in the village of Severne, which were made of wooden and brick, and they're located 35 miles from ground zero within the test range, were completely destroyed. The heat from the explosion could have caused third-degree burns 62 miles away from ground zero. And a shock was observed in the air 430 miles away. Window panes were partially broken as far away as 560 miles. The energy yielded was around 8.1 on the Richter scale, and it didn't hit the ground. That's insane. And it says, the TNT equivalent of the 50 megaton test could be represented by a cube of dynamite 1,023 feet on its side, approximately the height of the Eiffel Tower. Piece of dynamite that high. And it says, the technology is there to build bigger ones. The only problem is we can't fly them. If we had a missile the size of like the Apollo rockets or the Saturn V rockets that NASA put in space, if somebody had a missile that size, they said they could easily carry up to 700 megatons. This one was 50. You want to know why Israel's freaking out over what Iran's doing? Holy smokes. Look at the next picture, Mo. Let's just show one more. I got a chart. You got to see this. See that little bitty 10 kilotons down there? That was Hiroshima. The one on the right is the, one, is the other one. Actually, it went higher than that. That is nuts. That is nuts. And listen, that's just what we are capable of. Can you imagine what the one who holds the atoms together is capable of? That bomb, they say, that SAR bomb... Estimates say it was only a quarter of what the Krakatoa vol volcano did in 1883. So you imagine when the earth shifts and everything happens. So is this supporting the idea of it rolling up and everything? Is this, is this what he's talking about? Um, it could be. Certainly John's attempting to describe something that he's never seen. You know, that could very well be. But I don't really think so because I think we've been looking at a supernatural event caused by God. He's been listening supernatural disasters and i think what we're going to be seeing is something of that magnitude but caused by god a supernatural disaster in hebrews 12:26, he says at that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised yet once more i will shake not only the earth but also the heavens i will shake not only the earth but also the heavens i think that what we're looking at here is a different story so if it's not if it's not rockets then what do you think it is 
What would be the stars falling from the skies if it's not rockets? Meteorites. I think if it's going to be something, that's what it is. How many movies have you seen about a meteorite hitting the earth or going to hit the earth and we all got to go land a plane on it and stop it from, you know, all these things? I think that's probably what it's talking about. Uh, most of the guys I quote from frequently, they say the same thing. We're talking about meteorites. I mean, a decent-sized meteor do a whole lot more damage than that. Adrian Rogers says, on May 1st, 1999, Time Magazine asked this question. Where were you on the night of March 23rd? Out dancing, perhaps, or attending a PTA meeting, or just sitting at home watching L.A. Law? If so, you did not realize how close you came to disaster. While you were blissfully unaware of the danger, a huge asteroid whizzed past the Earth, coming closer than any other such heavenly bodies seen in 52 years. If the giant clump of rock, a half, a half mile, a half mile, a half mile across, by one estimate, if it had hit the planet, it would have packed a wallop of thousands of H-bombs and possibly killed millions of people. That's one. So if God starts hurling those bad news, bad, bad, bad news, and so some believe that that will cause the atmosphere to be damaged, and the skies we are used to looking at it will look dramatically different, and that's very true. Why do you think everybody's freaking about the ozone? You know, if those on wasn't there, look a lot different, right? We'd cook, they say. Isaiah 34, 4, just make a note of it, don't turn. Isaiah 34, 4 says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. This is horrific. This is horrible. And Isaiah prophesied word for word the same thing that we are now seeing happen, even down to the fig tree, being shaken like figs off a tree. And these guys, man, these guys are now going to hide in the rocks. Instead of calling out to God, save us, they're calling out to the rocks to fall on us. They're praying to nature instead of praying to God at this point even. And they're hiding in the rocks that are actually shifting in, you know, because they got to get out of the coming hailstorm of meteors and whatever else. Nowhere to go. Horrific, horrific situation. And then... They say, who can withstand the day of the wrath of the Lamb? Yeah, you want to say no one. That's what you want to say. But the cool thing is, the seventh seal says, oh yeah, I've got a few. We've got a few. So that's where we're headed with the seventh seal. So what do you take away from this? I thought about this long and hard. I was like, man, this is so depressing on the one hand. But here's the takeaway. Who can stand... Who can stand before this? That's the last words that we heard. Who could stand before this great day? Look at Nahum, of all places, chapter 1. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 6, Nahum says, Who can stand before God's indignation or his wrath? Who can stand before, let's put it into Revelation, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Who can endure the heart of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and rocks are broken into pieces by him. Same picture of Revelation. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries, the ones who have made the martyrs, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. So look at what's in there. Yeah, he's coming. Who can stand in his wrath? And yes, he's going to bring justice and make a complete end of his enemies. But what does verse 7 say? The Lord is good. Now, you may have been reading all this and thinking and hearing everything I'm saying and seeing this stuff on the board. It might be messing up your picture of God. Right in the middle, Nahum, right in the middle of this horrific description of what God's going to do, he says... The Lord is good, and he's a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. That's what you can go home and think about. Let me pray. God, you are, you are awesome, and you are good, and you are amazing, and I love you so much. And uh, I'm overwhelmed by this. Uh, you know that. I've been overwhelmed by it for a few days now. And, uh, God, I, I just pray that, Lord, you would help us remember that no matter what we see or we think, when we see you, Lord, you are good. You are good. You are sovereign. And let us take refuge in you. God, 
rapture or no rapture. Lord, let us take refuge, let, let us take refuge in you because you are good. And even were it that we were martyred, you are good. I love you. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for who you are. And we love you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.